Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Church. My name is uh, Ben Dockery and it is going to be a lot of fun this morning for us to kick off this new series, the I Am series. And as you just heard in the video, I mean, I'll just say for us, um, our small group is one of the highlights, uh, one of the things we look forward to um, discussing these things and other things that are going on in our lives. And so if you're not in a small group, um, just know this is such an easy time to do that, to start off a new series. It's not a commitment. I'm going to be in this for the rest of my life. You can start this week. You can join online. One of the nights, Tuesday or Thursday night, get on, see if you like it, uh, meet some new people. It's a way to at least try it out. And starting a new series is always one of the easiest times to jump in to a group uh, like this. Um, as Siler said, we're going to be in John chapter uh, 6 this morning, which is the first of these statements on who uh, Jesus begins to say um, that he is. And over the, all, it's going to take us all the way through Easter looking at uh, what it is that Jesus is self-disclosing, right? A divine disclosure about who he claims to be as he's teaching. You know a lot of stories about him, but what is it that he actually says about himself? And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, for the next several weeks together. Now, when that happens, oftentimes our assumptions about who Jesus is are surfaced in the middle of, a, of looking at what Jesus actually says. Uh, there's a New Testament professor here in Chicago, a guy named Scott McKnight. I mean, he teaches classes on the New Testament. And when he's covering the book of John in uh, the early Gospels, one of the things he does, he gives his students a quiz. He gives them two quizzes to start the year. The first one is just tell me about yourself. Who are you? What are you interested in? What do you love? What do you like? What do you not like? Who are your friends? What are you passionate about? What are you doing with your life? Those kind of questions. Get to know you. And then he gives them the, the same quiz, but he changes the name out. Tell me about Jesus, right? Who is he? What was he like? What was he interested in? What does he love? What's he passionate about? What did he do? That sort of thing. And he says it's shocking that the answers are almost always identical, right? What Jesus is interested in is actually the same thing that I am. And even if somebody is interested in one thing, for whatever reason, they're inclined to think that Jesus is just like them. And I think if we're honest, and I think what we're going to see in John 6 is that we are probably would answer the quiz the same way. It's there. So I want to give you two warnings as we read this. The first one, as we look at John 6, is that um, as you look at this, you're going to realize this is not, uh, as, as Pastor Mike says regularly, this is not a self-help guide, right? This is actually a way for you to see um, who God is and not have you align God with your life, but for you to realign your life in order to see who God is. So number one, your heart might be exposed in this. And when that happens, just a heads up, maybe uglier than you actually think. Number two is that John chapter six is the longest chapter in the New Testament. So we're going to be flying through this thing this morning. If you've ever taken an architecture tour downtown Chicago, right? And you're, you're going on that thing. And there's just so many absolutely amazing buildings. You're like, wait, which one was the female architect that's the tallest? Is that the aqua or was it, or that's Wrigley and that's the tribute. So you're going through this and it, it, you, you, at the end, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I just heard so much that's there. And honestly, John 6 is going to be exactly like that. As we move through this thing and before we get to the end, I think you're going to feel like, wait, how much is actually going there? So buckle up, hold on. I'm going to read beginning in verse 25. I want to read the first 10 verses for us to get us going. Um, this morning. There's your two fair warnings. Uh, beginning in verse 25, the text should be on the screen as well. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus said, Verily, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures into eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father was pleased 
to place his approval. And then they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And he said, the work of God is this. You ready? To believe in the one he has sent. And they ask him, what sign will you give that we may believe you? What will, uh, what will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, verily, truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who gave them the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives them the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, always give us this bread. And what's he say? Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let me invite you just to pause for just a moment and pray with me as we continue. God, I just pray that what we know not that you will teach us, what we have not that you will give us, and what we are not that you will make us. So God, we pray by your spirit, you would teach us what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. Amen. As we look at this passage, um, and we're talking about bread for the next 25, 30 minutes together, we're talking about bread, right? There's going to be a, several different angles and, and three that I think we'll, we'll just try to wrap, wrap the time around. The first one is this idea of life. The second one will be this idea of manna. And the third one will be a word that shows up a little bit later on is flesh. And each one of them describes bread a little bit different ways. So the first one is bread here. Um, when it comes to bread of life. Now, this is not some random teaching of Jesus where he's thinking, what should I think of that will allow them to understand me? I know, bread, right? That, that's not how this actually comes up. Right before this, earlier in the chapter, we didn't read it, but there's two miracles that show up that John is recording that precede Jesus' teaching on explaining who he is as the bread of life. And the first one is very familiar, is where he uh, is on the hillside teaching, and there's about 20,000 people. We call it the feeding of the 5,000 because there were about 5,000 men, we think. And the feeding of the 5,000 where he takes one little boy's bread and now br there's enough bread for everyone there to eat. And the whole country is talking about him. They try to make him king. They're trying to promote him. They're trying to make him the ruler. Like, holy smokes, if he can do that, what could he do if we put him in a position of power, right? This is the guy. So that is swirling around in the background. And then secondly, right after that, it says he comes to the other side of the lake. The disciples get on a boat to go across. And then in the middle of this storm that shows up, Jesus walks out to the boat. And so now they've seen this person who has changed bread and they've seen this person who has somehow made it out to the boat on top of the water. There's two, there's two divine acts that have happened that are unexplainable. And this is in the immediate imagination of the disciples when he's about to walk in and say, hey, I am the bread of life. That's, that's what we're coming to. And when you hear bread, you probably think like me, right? You go to the grocery store aisle in your head and there's like 72,000 different choices of which kind of bread that you want that are there. And yes, that's true in our life. And it's $2 for, you know, Sara Lee and it's $27 for sourdough, almond butter, something, potato. What, like it, there's, there's brands that are really expensive. But when they say bread, right, um, if you're a working person in the first century, almost everyone in the first century, there, there certainly were people that were really wealthy and there were people that were in power. That is, that is true. But for most people, they spend about 85% of their working week to make enough money for their family to eat. 
right? So when they say bread, it's representative of bread and food and, and that which is the substance by which we live, right? So you, so you can almost associate when they're saying this, what, what's your 85%, right? What is it that you live on? What is it that makes you able to live your life the way that they live their life? And so when he's doing that, we, we kind of have to have a first century encyclopedia in our head to make sure that, that we are thinking about this the way that uh, this audience would have been thinking about this. Um, as well. And what Jesus is saying is that that, that 85% is what's driving you, right? That appetite to maintain your life, to sustain your life, to be alive, right, is what is driving you. And there's more than that. There's food like that that spoils. It doesn't really last very long. There's an expiration date. And then there's another set of food. There, there's something else that sustains your life that doesn't actually grow mold on it and go bad one day, right? There are two different things. And the Bible uses two different words. In the Greek, we describe this this way. In the Greek, there's two, actually two words for this. One of them is the word bios, right? So like biology, it just means breathing. It means life, that's your life. And the other one is zoe, which is the word that's used significantly more. So the Bible in the New Testament uses the first one 10 times. It uses zoe like 125, 135 times, something like that. Used significantly more. And it just means a full life, an abundant life, right? Life plus, material life Physical life, yes, absolutely. But there's also more than that, right? There's another layer to what's happening, another dimension of our reality that's there. And Jesus here, and when John's describing it, he's saying he is the bread that is this second bread, right? It is this bread that's not just so that you can make it from one meal to the next. So Jesus is making sure that they understand this is more than just being fed, right? He's saying, no, there's something that is lasting, it's actually satisfying. As he goes on to explain it, he says, once you eat it, you will never have to eat again. Once you have had a drink of this, right, once you have tasted of it, there's actually, you're not thirsty anymore. It, it truly satisfies you in a place below what other things can satisfy you. And what, is, what does the group say? Like, what, what happens here? They say, Rabbi, wait, what? Really? Why don't you show us a sign that you're this bread of life that can satisfy us forever? Why don't you give us a sign, right? Which is crazy because what happened in the first part of the chapter, right? Like if they're really looking for this sign, they just had two things that if, it seems like if we were there, it would change our lives dramatically, right? We would, we would never forget either one of those two moments that could have happened. And he's like, yeah, you're not asking me for a sign. You're asking because you ate the bread. I know that's there. But you, you have something else that's going on in your life. And they say, Moses gave us a sign, right? Jesus, you claim to be a prophet. What about Moses? What did he do? Moses brought down bread from heaven to feed the people, right? He brought down this manna, Exodus chapter 16, and he fed the people. And Jesus says, oh, you think it's Moses. It was, it's my father that actually did that, that was there, right? It is, it is my father who fed the Israelites that, that your ancestors ate because of my father. Now, this is going to get him in trouble. Ultimately, this, you're going to see how this does this. But if the first word for bread of life is really talking about this life that's more than just physical life, more than just the material life that's there, the second word that I want you to think about associating with what he's saying is this word of manna. So Exodus chapter 16, it's, a, it's again a longer passage, but I think we need to look at it and read it just so that we're aware, not just of the immediate context of what Jesus is teaching in these miracles, but of the story, the larger story surrounding what they're talking about when they say ancestors of manna. So it should be on the screen here, beginning in verse 2, Exodus 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. That word grumbled is going to be key. The Israelites said this, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. 
There we sat around with pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out here in the desert to starve this entire community or this entire assembly. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and to gather enough food for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring, and there will be twice as much as they gathered on the other days. And then verse 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, in the evening, you're going to know something. Ready? What are you going to know? You're going to know that it is the Lord. It is Yahweh, right, who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see that the glory of the Lord, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. So he says he's going to rain down bread from heaven, this manna. Um, again, let me, let me um, geek out for just a second again. Uh, I didn't know this leading up to this week, but in or preparing for this sermon, I uh, learned a little bit more about this word manna. And one of the things that uh, you're taught to do in training is to go do these word studies and figure out, like, what's the origin of the word and how many times is it used and where does it go? And so you can begin to understand the dimensions and the purpose and the way an author might actually try to be using it. So manna comes from two different words in the Hebrew. The first one is ma, which is just the question what. And the second one is the word na, which is just means like, no, not really. Um, not kidding. That's the English version of na. Like, no, not really. Um, na just is like a question mark. It's like a, a kind of a, it's hard to explain. Um, but as I looked into it, it's, it's really people, if you look up the definition of manna, it will just say in the Hebrew, manna means what is it? It just, it's a question. It's like, what is it? What is this stuff that is this bread-like coriander seed kind of white substance that's almost gooey. Like they, the more you explain it, it shows up in numbers. It shows up in Deuteronomy. They explain it different ways. But this manna, this phrase of what is it, which honestly is hilarious to me. It's hilarious to me that the Israelites call it what is it, and it becomes the name of the thing they eat. So if you think about it, this is something they're going out to eat every single day. There's enough for the day. If you try to take too much, it spoils. It goes bad right away. So they only get enough for the day. And then on the sixth day, they have to eat twice as much because they're going to take a Sabbath. They're not going to actually go out and work on the seventh day to remind themselves that God is working for them. And that in the same way God rests, they're going to rest. They're not going to act like Pharaoh's their king anymore who made them work seven days a week. They're going to act like God is their king and they're going to take a rest because he's running the world now. And as they do that, every morning they go out and go, what is it? right? What is it? It's hilarious to me. It's not just like a week. This happens for an entire generation of Israel, which to me, I don't know why. I just think God has a sense of humor that it ends up being called, what is it? And every day they're like, hey, let's go get some more. What is it? And it's like, you've been doing it for 40 years. You know, you don't have to ask what it is. Anyway, so manna is this word that's associated with, um, it's associated with what Jesus is talking about here. When he's explaining that he's the bread that comes down from heaven, he is this manna that your ancestors ate. That's the sign that's there. Jesus is going to come in. And what do the people do in Israel? Did you catch how it started and it finished? It finished with the same phrase. And it is that the Israelites, this people that God just rescued, brought through the sea where the, where the Pharaoh's army was killed. They showed up in a desert, didn't have any water. God provides water for them. And now what are they doing again? They're grumbling again. They're complaining against God again because they think they're going to starve. They're not going to eat. You saw that. Let's just go back to Egypt where we could die. Their heart is exposed by their circumstances. Okay? The people of Israel, God's people, their heart is exposed by the circumstances that he puts them in. And their heart is a heart of grumbling. And a heart of grumbling, I'm going to recommend there's three things that I think you see right here 
inside of this heart. Manna, actually, if you associate the word manna with grumbling, a people's heart, a manna, you're going to see sometimes how your own appetites, your own natural desires cause you to grumble when you don't have what it is that you might want at the time. So in Israel, the first thing that we see happens is that they confuse their wants and their needs. A grumbling heart confuses what we want with what we need. It it mixes those two things up. They say here in verse, uh, at the beginning, they say we're going to starve. But the very next chapter says as they moved out with their herds, right? So in other words, they have these goats and sheep, like the milk and cheese store is still open. They can eat. It's not like they don't have food. So, but somehow they're still seeing their circumstances in a way that they don't have exactly what they want. And so they're grumbling against God, exposes their heart. Second thing that it does is they begin to exaggerate the circumstances that they're in. We wish we would have just died, right? Like, I wish I would have just died and not even been alive right now because of what's happening um, in my life. The third thing uh, that it does, it doesn't just exaggerate the circumstances, but the third thing it does is it gives you a very selective memory of what used to be. A grumbling heart makes you uh, replay your life's history in a way that's actually not accurate. Because what did they say? They said, oh, if we could go back to Egypt, we could have pots of stew and we could be eating around there. But if you can remember the story of Egypt and the story of Israel and Egypt, why were they even there, right? I mean, why was Moses having to come and rescue them? It's because Pharaoh set up these evil men to be their supervisors, and he made them work tirelessly over and over and over in forced, in unjust labor situations where they worked constantly. And what did they do? They cried out to God over and over and over to remove them from the situation. And even though that was true about their life, even they lived in these horrible conditions When they get here in a new circumstance, what do they say? Oh, if we could just go back to the good old days, right? If we could just go back when somebody else was in power, somebody else was ruling our life. The current circumstances expose, and it gives them a very selective memory as to what was true about their past. And even though it does this, it exposes our hearts in these same ways, and I think it does with us too, it also teaches us something about God in each one of these. So corresponding to one of these um, insights about our hearts is also a truth about God in which I think the people of Israel are missing. And it might be easy for us to miss too. Jesus is teaching them all this in the middle of it. But the first one is when they confuse their wants and their needs, instead of being okay with the daily bread, the provision enough for what they can have today, Israel wants more than that, right? They want more than what God has given them in this very moment. But what is God saying? He's saying, my purpose isn't just to, I'm going to write you a check and you're going to be fine and good forever. You don't need me anymore. No, I want a relationship with you, Israel. I, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also want to know you and I want to walk with you, not just at a one-time thing that's good for the next five years, right? But every single day. I want you to live in a relationship with me where you trust me, where you talk to me, where you depend on me every single day. And they're confusing their wants and their needs, and they miss that God wants a relationship with them. Secondly, uh, when they are uh, exaggerating their circumstances, they actually miss that in the middle of that, that God is disciplining them. That he is actually testing to see what they're made of, right? What, what's going on inside? Is there any metal? Is there anything that's inside of there that's, that's real, right? God is testing them. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we hear this. 
Moses preaches a sermon and says, hey, when you are in the middle, I think I have this passage on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 and 4, uh, 2 through 4, Moses is preaching a sermon now. And he says, hey, what happened when you're in the middle of the desert? And he says this, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years to do what? To humble you and to test you in order to know what's going on in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is testing his people, but what does Egypt think, or what does Israel think is happening? They think they're testing God, right? Which is the same thing that the people listening to Jesus when he says he's the bread of life, they want to test him. Show us a sign. We want to test you, God. C.S. Lewis calls this putting God in the dock making yourself the judge and you're the one who's examining God. He says, no, I'm sorry, it doesn't actually work that way. You do not get to set yourself up in the throne like, or in the judge's chair to examine God. God is the one who is examining you. And back in Israel's time, Moses tells them the circumstances in which you're in is part of God uh, testing you to see if your heart is truly given to him or not. And they miss that because they're exaggerating the nature of their circumstances. And then finally, they missed uh, when their selective memory causes them to miss that God has demonstrated that he is rescuing them. They forget the very thing that God has come in and done. Like their selective memory somehow wipes out the fact that, that God has just overturned the greatest power of the day in Pharaoh, released them from this time of slavery, parted them through this miraculous way to bring them on the other side of this sea, provided water for them, and now he's about to do what? In the midst of their grumbling, he's going to meet them with what? A backhand. No, he doesn't. He meets them with food. <laughs> he provides for them even when they grumble. He gives them this generous gourmet sustaining meal. And it's not just once, but he gives it to them over and over and over and over and over in the midst of their unbelief and the midst of their hearts running the wrong way. So, Number one, with life, it's more than just physical life. It's, it's, uh, it's a deeper level of life that Jesus is promising. Number two, when he's talking about this, he's saying, yes, it is like this manna from heaven, this gift from God that's there that actually does two things at once. It tells you that God is providing for you, maybe not in the way that you want, but he is providing for you. And secondly, it exposes what your heart may be doing before God. And then there's a third one. There's a third word that's here at the end that I want you to think about when you see the bread of life. Jesus uh, oftentimes does something or teaches something and he gets a huge following. And then for whatever reason, he doesn't read the poll numbers right and then he loses his following. His numbers go down. And this happens again. Like he has a huge following. There's a ton of people around him. And this is what he says next. Uh, still in John 6, verse 48. I think it's on the screen again. He repeats the phrase, I am the bread of life. Good. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. So he's reminding them of what happened to them in the end. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone can eat and not die. So he's contrasting the two. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. That's the third word I want you to hear. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for, for, the life, for life in this world. So as he's saying that I am the bread of life, and then he's qualifying it to explain that it's manna, but he's also saying that it is his flesh, right? And this isn't going to go over well with people who are there. Like they are not going to understand what's happening 
and lots of people are going to leave uh, and not follow him that's there. Um, Sherry Harder is the um, president of something called the Trinity Forum, which is like a Christian think tank cultural uh, group in Washington, D.C. And, and recently in her newsletter, she was uh, referring, to, um, referring to a book called The Invisible Gorilla. And you may have done this in your sales training at some point in your life. And The Invisible Gorilla was, uh, was a test that was done on a bunch of, started with college students, but then they did it with doctors and lawyers and all sorts of other people as well. But they're trying to see how it is that people can entirely miss the main point of what's happening in front of them. Like, how is it that something significant can occur and yet lots of people who are paying attention to it and watching it can completely miss it? So the test they did is they threw six, uh, six people in a room. Three of them are wearing white T-shirts. Three of them are wearing black T-shirts. The white team has a basketball and the black team has a basketball. And they say, your job is to count how many times the white team, the, the team with white t-shirts passes the basketball to other people with white t-shirts, right? And so they're all running around in a circle that's happening. As that's happening, as, as it's, and you're counting, you have like 20 seconds to count it. As that hap- happens, from the side of the screen, someone who's dressed in a gorilla costume walks in the middle of it. You've, you may have seen this. And they start, he starts beating his chest, and then he walks right out on the other side, right? And because people are so focused on counting how many times the team that has white t-shirts passed the ball to the other team, literally 50% of the participants did not see the gorilla walk into the screen. It sounds impossible. And now that I've told you, you can't like watch it and not see it. It's there. But there were, they did the study with these radiologists who were looking for this on a cancer screening and they put a gorilla in the background, like a gorilla inside of a human. And the radiologists didn't even see that it was there. Why? Because they were so focused on the task that they were given to see some specific thing in the cancer screening they were looking for. Their focus allowed them to be right here. They didn't see what was happening right around, right? It's something that goes on. The, the researcher says it this way. The brain had effectively framed one's vision, filtered out the, uh, the appearance of anything that was extraordinary, right? So an extraordinary thing happened and the brain filtered it out because they were so focused. They looked right at it, but because they're not looking for a gorilla, they didn't see that it's a gorilla, right? It's possible and it happened with Jesus at the end when he's teaching here now by 46, he's in the synagogue, it says, teaching in a synagogue that people are exposed to God himself who came down from heaven, who's telling the truth about the world and they're listening to it and they don't even see it. They, they don't understand it at all. And he says that it's my flesh. And they're like, wait, we're supposed to eat you as a human, right? They, they get so confused as to what he's actually saying that they miss the bread of life, the thing that's satisfied, the thing that gets rid of thirst, the truth that isn't just Jesus is going to provide for you, but Jesus says what? I am the provision. It's not that I'm pointing you to the bread. I am the bread. Like, I am the one that actually can step in and satisfy what it is you're looking for. That's the third one, is that is flesh. And you see very quickly, you see people respond different ways. The first thing you see is what we've already seen is that people grumble. In verse 60, they say, man, on hearing this, the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Like, who could deal with what he just said about himself? It doesn't really work. Secondly, you see people that just walked away. Verse 66 says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, right? There was something about the teaching of Jesus that they just said, hey, I'm not in. I'm not going with you there, right? That's not it. But then third, there's a group of people who respond and they say, and this is Peter, 
It says this. Jesus looks at the 12. He says, so you want to leave too? You out? I get it, right? You're going to walk away as well to the 12? And Peter speaks on behalf of the 12, and he says, he says this, Lord, where else are we going to go? To, to whom are we going to turn? For you have the words of eternal life, this Zoe life, this more than material life, this more than just breathing life. You are the one who is delivering those words. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Instead of looking for some sort of uh, synthetic bread, some sort of really flimsy solution to life that lasts, yes, it, it lasts for a little while and it's good. Jesus is saying, no, there's something that's actually greater than that. And it's something that actually, once you turn the key in this, it sustains you forever. And not just this life, but in the life to come as well. And it's me. And the work of God to find me is to do what? To work really, really hard? No. To uh, run away from all these other things? No. It is to believe. The work of God that he's inviting them into is actually to believe that he is the one that is sent from heaven. To receive, if you will, the gift of bread. I want to close uh, with this illustration. We're about to step into a time of communion, and you're going to see how um, even receiving the bread that we're about to receive just ties this up, I think, really well together. But I want to close with this story. There's a pastor in New York City um, named John Tyson who um, his sister uh, adopted some kids, and she adopted kids from an orphanage. Uh, that was a um, very deprived type situation. The kids didn't know when they would eat next. It was inconsistent food distribution that was there. And so because of that, her kids, her children that she adopted, didn't believe that someone would provide for them. So because they didn't believe someone would provide for them, they actually had a really hard time sleeping, which is a common issue uh, with younger orphans that come from that specific type of situation. Their circumstances cause them not to know when they wake up whether they're going to be provided for. Is there going to be anything that's there? And so a uh, child psychologist started to think through this, and she came up with a study um, that instead of laying the child down with more stuffed animals or more book and bedtime stories or whatever the routine that might be to help them sleep at night that's there, all she did is she removed all those things and she literally put a loaf of bread in their arms and allowed them to go to sleep with it. And her success rate shot through the roof. And these little kids instantly, with his sister's situation, instantly started sleeping through the night. Why? Because they, <laughs> they knew that when they woke up in the morning, they were going to be provided for by their parents. They had a demonstration of something that was given to them that they could hold on to, and they could not just be in proximity to. Like, it was just in the kitchen. It was nearby. But now it was something they could actually experience and they could hold on to. And when Jesus says, this is my flesh, this bread of life, and you must participate in it. You don't just have to be near me. You don't have to be in proximity to Jesus. You actually have to experience him. That's why he's saying you must eat of it. You must drink of it. You must know it in a real way. You must hold on to it. And when you do that, when you experience this bread of life that came down from heaven in that way, you actually rest really deeply. You actually experience all that God has promised by saying your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for anyone who experiences the life that Christ has earned for us. Right? Man does not live by bread alone, but lives by the very word of God. And Jesus invites us to trust and to live by that word of God and to experience the demonstration of his love for us when he died for us and when he gave his life and when he 
returned out of the grave uh, to offer life, not just in this life, but also in life to come. Let's pray. Father, it, it, uh, it's certainly, we're flying through such a rich, deep passage of Scripture and I almost feel bad for how much we didn't get to cover um, this morning, how much we didn't get to see. But God, where our hearts were exposed to be just like Israel's, God, I pray you would meet us in that place and that you would meet us with what we need for today and you would give us um, faith to receive the gift that you're giving us of, of bread of this, this one, this Christ who you have sent us. God, for those of us that are in more difficult places or difficult seasons of life where life just isn't uh, making much sense um, for us, God, I, I pray your spirit uh, would meet us there and that you would offer healing and you would offer hope in the midst of that situation. And God, for those of us who are probably living more approximate to you, we want to be close. We don't want to get too close, though. God, I pray you'd give us the courage to step in, um, to take a step of faith in our life, whatever that looks like, but to depend on you more than we do today. Depend on you more deeply so that we could actually have a relationship with you. Not a one-time thing in the past, but a current every day, every minute, every hour relationship where we walk with you. Thank you for your grace and mercy you've extended to us. And help us now to experience that as we step into this time of communion. In Jesus' name.